Joe Biden said yesterday he hopes his children grow up to be billionaires. Well, they're grown, Joe. And another decade of public service might just get them there. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Ruthless. Democrats are set to take control of the U.S. Senate, House, and the White House. This will go down as one of the most progressive administrations in American history. God willing, everything is on the table. You now can pass things without a filibuster threat. Oh, you regret this? And you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Ruthless Variety Program. You ought to see us in our new board. Boy, oh boy, are we sophisticated. It's completely official at this point. We got a soundboard. We even got Holmes jumping in with Duncan on this thing. Dude, Holmes over here on the intro is like David Guetta. It was (laughs) impressive, you know, like with the crossfader and he's hitting the buttons. Yeah. 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 Racist. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. This one's my favorite. Guys, you got to see this soundboard. Liar. <laughs> and we got that sad trombone. I, I think the show's going to take a big step up, folks. Hold on. Let me play the sad, sad trombone. <laughs> I mean, that thing's going to get some music. You're all in a lot of trouble. We've got sound effects now. I mean, this thing is getting almost <laughs> professional, which I don't know exactly where that heads. That could be a steep decline uh, now that we have some professionalism to us, but... I want, speaking of professionalism, I got to let everybody know the episode is sponsored by the Honest Elections Project. And this is a crew that we've admired for a long time. We have relied on for a lot of important research. They wanted to sponsor a show. And thank goodness, because it comes at a perfect time where we can talk a little bit about some of the things that they're up to, too. And it's much needed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before we get into that... Um, I just want to know whether or not there's been so much confusion, honestly, on online. I I, I don't know that I'm up to date. Are we getting banana hammocks? Are we getting bikini? What, what are we getting? We have the beach towel. Maybe, maybe we'll get the bikini. I'm still a no. I'm still a no in the banana hammocks. You're still a no? A hard no. I'm a hard no. Oh, that's well, controversial. I got, I got my shirt. I, I need to put an order for that hat. Get the ruthless hat. I got my shirt, and folks, I'm going to be wearing it when I run later today. So if you see a guy running in a ruthless shirt, that's me. Just remember, he's a hard no on the banana yeah. hammock. Right. Keep cyberbullying me. You're never going to get the hammock. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, look, um, there's a bunch of stuff that we got to get into in terms of like a fun little banter thing. Let, let's actually, let's do this. First. I also want to give a quick shout out to Shady. It's his uh, birthday on July 10th. Shady, your brother reached out to us on Twitter and our DMs, letting us know it's your birthday. He's a huge friend of the program. We appreciate it so much. So happy birthday to you. Did you guys see the things where they, they like every state rates what state it hates the most? Oh, yeah, I saw that just dropped on on Twitter not too long ago, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I found it really interesting because you can kind of like a lot of them are really predictable, really predictable. But like some of them aren't really all that predictable. Like you know, I mean, Minnesota hates Wisconsin. I get that. I get that. Uh, Every state that touches New Jersey hates New Jersey. <laughs> Every single one of them. 
and I get that too. But like, you know, Duncan, you're a you're a man who lived in many states. I did. What's the state you hate? What's the state I hate? Yeah. Gosh. That's a tough one. That is a really tough one. Um I mean I hate Virginia, the current state I live in. Oh, is that right? Yes. Interesting. That's that is interesting. I was expecting a different answer. I was expecting a different answer too. I mean, I've lived in Pennsylvania, I've lived in Michigan, I've lived in Indiana, I've lived in Texas. All of those are better states than Virginia. Interesting. Well, it's, it's I, listen, I understand that now that it's blue as blue gets. Royal blue as they say. Well, who knows. But I think we're in the midst of changing that. Yeah. I hope so. I you don't know? have a lot of faith in my neighbors. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. And and like God bless them. But if they don't wake up soon, I mean, how, how, how about you, Holmes? What's your state? No, it's 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 honestly it is Wisconsin, but it's it's a sports related thing. It's mm. not that I really hate the people of Wisconsin. I actually have a lot of really good friends from Wisconsin. They are very similar to people from Minnesota, so I naturally get along with them very well, as I do most Midwestern people, to be frank with you. Uh, but it's like you know the Green Bay Packers. I hate them, mm-hmm. right? So it's I think it comes up naturally. And if you look at the way that they rank all these things, almost everything is a border deal. Yeah, right. Almost everything. And and, and the other fascinating thing is not only does every state that touches California hate California the most, every state that touches states that hate California also hates California. They have like a two to three state radius of where everyone hates them. And then it says California hates Texas. Like what? Well, so so the thing I found most interesting about this, this graphic is, well, look, I mean, you got Georgia and, and Alabama that dislike Florida, but apparently Florida also hates Florida. (laughs) It's the only state. That's so weird. It's the only state that hates itself. See, I don't get that. Like I I love the state of Florida. Self-loathing state. See, I, I would say my least favorite is probably California, but I still love California. Like the the, the well, it's pretty. The people who run the state are terrible and are driving into the ground, but the state itself, there's so many wonderful people and wonderful things there. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's a good point because, like, you know, I look at this and I I see um, people hate West Virginia. How do you hate West Virginia? Seriously. Well, I don't know, but like for West Virginia hates Virginia for obvious reasons. For obvious yeah. reasons, right? Yeah, and I don't hate all of Virginia. Also, you know, uh, I love how like Texas. It looks like what Texas hates Virginia. Is that it? No, it's Oklahoma. No, it hates Oklahoma. Well, that, but the that Oklahoma Texas yeah. thing, like Red River Shootout. Oh, yeah. you can't call it the shootout yeah. anymore. It's now the rivalry. Wait, yeah. seriously? Yeah, now it's the Red River. Are you shut up. They, cha- they even in Texas they change that. That's right. Yeah. Oh my God. God! Are you kidding me? The Iron Bowl is going to be like the soft metals bowl. Yeah. <laughs> oh Jesus! All right. Well. All right. Let's move. Let's move, move to one more thing. I saw this thing in France mm-hmm. that brought back sort of a to me a debate that we've been having a long time about labor in the United States. France has apparently automated their pizza joints that, where from, they do, and not just like, you know, taking your orders. This is not like McDonald's where you go, you push your buttons or whatever, you know, your order. I mean, this robot does that. But it actually, it's like cutting slices and putting the pizza in the box. Yeah. So there's like literally no human involved, right? Somebody comes in and obviously programs the damn thing. Yeah. But that's it. After that, I mean, this is fight for 15. But it is fight for 15. 15. But it comes, but but it's, to me, it is a much grander indictment 
of the democratic idea of fighting for labor in this country. Yeah. Right? They don't see this stuff. Like the fight for 15 is all about trying to get people in the minimum wage up six, seven bucks from where they're currently at. And it's always talking about like what's the minimum wage versus your maximum expectations. Mm -hmm. How can you get somebody to a point where they're programming robots or something like that? You know, and they're not. They're they're in this country, we're entire the left is entirely focused on basically trying to create something that it looks like at least Europe is innovative innovating out of. My question is, what's the pizza like? I think that's the bottom line what it comes down to. Like, is the robot doing a good job? Is it is, is the pizza perfectly cooked? You know? It, I mean, it, it doesn't strike me as like slicing and boxing, but like, honestly, if if the if robot's doing a good job, like I'm torn well, on this. Can't you program it to make it perfect? That's the thing is like, you know, it's it, it could like use heat vision or something to make sure it's all evenly cooked perfectly you know, manage the time, absolutely perfect pizza, which, you know, I think that's great. But at the same time, I, I maintain the view that the robots, we, we, we have to kill robots we have before to kill robot. they kill us. We have to first. kill robots. Because I mean, look how far they're getting. And like, you know, uh, one, like robots one day can turn off their money, right? All the Bitcoin money, the robot money's gone. <laughs> then they'll turn off all the lights, you know? Uh, no, know. Then they'll send the Roomba to come strangle you then, while you're sleeping. Then Putin will set it loose on America. Yeah, exactly. I know, it's a bad deal. But it did it did catch my attention because it is it is an indictment of where Democrats think that they're taking the country completely. All right. So um, as an intro into we talked on Tuesday a little bit about election reforms, where they're at in states. The reason this is pertinent right now is because Texas is retaking up their election reforms that if you remember about a month ago, Democrats walked out, literally walked out of this state legislature in Texas to try to prevent any legislating whatsoever. Right? Yeah, yeah, they were denying a quorum uh, in the legislature so that they couldn't pass these election reforms. I would remind our listeners that the same people in Washington who say we shouldn't have a filibuster uh, approve of denying quorum in Texas. Yeah. So it's, it's just sort of a little ironic. It's yeah. almost like, you know, they use power whenever they have it and they cry when you use it. Well, they're greeted at the White House and celebrated as heroes. Right. Right. But. The important part is, remember, all of this is coordinated within the Democratic Party. Yep. The reason that Georgia became the, quote, Jim Crow 2.0 was it was a message coordination amongst liberal, liberal, progressive Democrats, activists, corporate America that soon bled into the media and everything else that became controversial about a, a ton of law that was not controversial inherently. Yeah. Now, since we spent three months talking about, I, I would say Ruthless has led the charge on this, but but basically what we've done is provided facts that have help, helped counteract it and the things that were Jim Crow 2.0, America now approves of, yeah. right? Things like voter ID, right? stopping ballot harvesting, you know, making sure that people actually are registered to vote. Yeah. You know, like like just basic, just basic stuff. Well, so now that we're on the eve of Texas taking back this and you're going to hear a lot about this next week. I trust me. Yep. You're going to hear a lot about this. We're on the eve of it. CNN writes this story. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris will hold separate events to, to on Thursday to focus attention on the Democratic efforts to combat voter suppression and combat voting rights 
or I'm sorry, protect voting rights nationwide. Let's just listen to, listen to that verbiage. L- listen to how they phrase that. Right. Combat voter suppression. Who is doing the suppressing of the votes? Seriously. No, just answer that question. You can write that on a CNN article by a so-called mainstream journalist. Combat voter suppression. Which is it? Is it voter ID? Is that voter suppression? And and they certainly, you know, the Dems saw the polling on that and changed their tune. And and it, again, it goes back to the journalists just take the talking points that the Dems email to them and accept it as fact. Like for years, they accepted it as fact and they distributed this like theory that maybe black people are incapable of getting IDs. And now we know that's completely ridiculous. It's insulting. And this is why, you know, you see the polling where the public's like, you can't trick them anymore on this. This is an absolutely ridiculous assertion to make. Uh, having an ID to go vote sounds like a pretty sensible idea. And then the Dems changed their tune when the polling came in. But we got to stay ahead of it. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, I mean, look, it's been an effective tool of the media and the Democrats to say voter suppression, because in a lot of ways, it's sort of a non-falsifiable theory, right? Like, it's like, you know, Stacey Abrams lost the gubernatorial race in, in Georgia in 2018. Historic turnout across the country in that midterm in 2018. Yep. What is the first thing she says? Voter suppression. Yeah. Yeah. That's the reason I lost. Historic midterm turnout. Racist voter Ra- suppression. It's racist. It's voter suppression. And it's like, well, I mean. Zero data. Zero data. But it's non-falsifiable, so they can continue to say it you know, in perpetuity. But this is what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. So so don't think because we've spent three months working our tails off to ensure that people understand what's in the Georgia voting law that we don't have to start over again in Texas. That's why Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going out today to focus attention on, quote, democratic efforts to combat voter suppression. That sentence does not exist. Does not exist. That is a fictional statement. Well, it, and, they, and they failed on HR1, right? So like now they're going to go back into the states and try to run the same playbook and they have to fail there like they failed everywhere else and they failed in DC. It, but it's it's all just so not the next paragraph. Harris will announce the expansion of the Democratic National Committee's I will vote campaign with an event in the Washington DC era area according to a committee official. Biden will meet privately with a range of civil rights groups to talk about their efforts to protect voting rights, according to a White House advisor. There is nobody, Mm -hmm. not a single person, who is disenfranchised in this last election that will be enfranchised by anything that the Democrats are talking about. Exactly. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It is a purely fictional deal to try to get people with on board with the idea that you need to federalize things like ballot harvesting, which allows Democratic officials to go to an apartment building, hand somebody their ballot, make them fill it out in front of them, pick it up, and then go to their neighbor and do the same thing 300 times, take the stack to the voting booth and deposit it. And also, uh, like they said, uh, by federalizing the elections, they also want to throw in public funding of elections where, I mean, you don't have to look far. You look at what happened in New York City where you've got public funding of elections. And I think something like 20, 30 million dollars of taxpayer money was spent for these campaigns to run ads. And you saw you saw all kinds of stories in the last week about how the failure of the New York election is going to feed the fury of the right who distrusts democratic oh, yeah. reform. Oh yeah. Right? <laughs> Are you kidding me? 
Like they make they make this thing a, a Rube Goldberg machine where you can vote three times for one election and you know you got to go back and calculate and recalculate what everybody's vote means and then they come out with democracy. Yep. I mean, get the hell out of here with I mean, this. We just found out on Tuesday night, you know, that Eric Adams had actually won that election two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks after the vote. Two weeks. What a process. What a process. I, I just, I don't even know, I don't even know where to begin with all of this. So the outrage of this is is enough, but I thought, you know, one of the things that we could do is actually bring in an expert to talk about kind of the specifics of what we're seeing with election reforms across the country and what Democrats uh, Democrats are trying to do. Um, this is a guy who makes a living doing it. His name is Jason Sneed with the Honest Election Project. Uh, he's really leading the fight, honestly, in every one of these states and federally. Uh, let's get his thoughts. And I want to welcome Jason Sneed. He's the executive, executive director of the Honest Election Project. He's a guy who knows uh, a lot about this stuff and can dive in pretty deep. Jason, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I think the, where I'd like to start with this is just the basic proposition that Democrats have had in reaction to Georgia and Texas and all the efforts to sort of clarify election law after our pandemic. Um, what are they trying to do? I mean, I think it seems obvious, but, but Democrats are basically trying to push back on anything and everything that tries to have any integrity left in our election system. Am I wrong on that? I, I don't think you're wrong. What they're trying to do is, is, is rewrite the rules nationwide. And they're taking advantage of, of the moment, whether it was you know, COVID last year or the fact that they, they control the House, the Senate, and the White House this year to push the same voting agenda that they've had for years, get rid of voter ID laws, weaken ballot safeguards, uh, uh, massively expand mail-in voting while getting rid of even you know, basic rules like bans on ballot trafficking. This, what they're really trying to do right now is federalize elections in a way that, that leave our elections more vulnerable to fraud, more vulnerable to doubt at a time when we really need to be focusing on voter confidence in the democratic process. And that's exactly what voters want, but you know, they're going in the opposite direction. Well, my sense, and you're sort of leading this fight, we, we obviously got broadsided at the beginning of all of this with the left and, the, and corporate America's attacks on the Georgia voting law, but it feels like the tide has turned a little bit. When you get Raphael Warnock and, and the crew in Georgia to finally concede that voter ID is not a uh, Jim Crow 2.0 tool, it feels like the argument has changed a little bit. What's your perspective? I, you know, are we going to make progress here? I, I remember Texas, what was it, a month ago, the state legislature walked out. Uh, are they going to be able to reform their laws in Texas? Well, you know, Texas actually comes back in a special session uh, tomorrow on the 8th to, to do exactly that. Now, the question is, will, will Democrats walk out once again? Uh, there's, there's a fair chance that they will. And, you know, look, you've got to appreciate I guess we'll charitably call it the irony of national Democrats cheering the Texas House uh, Democrats to stage essentially a filibuster in Texas while they're also trying to get rid of the filibuster right. in Washington. So Republicans uh, can't can't use the same tactics. Um, but, you know, I think that I think that we are making progress in this fight. And I think that part of the reason that you see folks like Stacey Abrams and, and Raphael Warnock saying good things about voter ID is because they see the same polling that we do. And, and, and it's not even new polling necessarily. Although we've done a lot recently, 
But um, you know, take polling that we did with our partner group, HEP Action. More than three in four voters actually favor photo ID laws, including huge majorities of black voters, Hispanic voters, even Biden voters, right? So, so if you've got the people who are supposedly the victims of these laws standing up and saying, actually, I think it's pretty reasonable and we should have it, then you know that you're out of sync with the mainstream. And I think that the flip-flopping that you've seen from some of these folks who have for years opposed voter ID laws, Raphael Warnock tried to fundraise on his opposition to voter ID after he said he had never opposed it, I think you're just seeing a recognition that they have not been able to convince people. And so they've got to at least seem like they're for voter ID. But the problem, of course, there is they have yet to actually see a voter ID law that they actually like. So, right. you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't take what they're saying um, uh, to the bank anytime soon. That's a good point, Jason. I think we've proven that we can win this argument over the long term with logic and facts and, and silly things like that. Um, what I'm concerned about and why I love what you guys are doing at the Honest Election Project is to make sure that the left can't characterize what many states are trying to do to keep their elections honest ahead of time, right? I felt like in particular with Georgia and then a little bit with Texas, everything, the, the media, corporate America and everybody sort of told us what was in the law before anybody actually read it. Yeah, the the talking point that this is a fight over democracy, that democracy is in peril, that's really an attempt to, to muddy the waters and obscure what is actually going on, right? Because if you actually look at the specifics for what legislation like HR1 did, it's tremendously unpopular. And so, of course, politicians don't want to, to go out and say that they are trying to get rid of popular election safeguards and impose unpopular ones on the entire country. They'd rather make this a fight about democracy. I think they get more play. But the, the, the dangerous part about all of this, of course, is the fact that the media is entirely bought in on that. You get a lot of the same talking points reiterated there. And then you wind up creating this environment in which you're priming a huge number of voters to doubt the outcome of future elections if you don't get legislation like HR1, right? I mean, what are what are our Democrats in Congress doing if not convincing their own base? If this, if this bill does not pass and we lose control of Congress next year or any one of us ever loses an election, you know, it's probably because of voter suppression. And the more doubt that we feed and, and fuel in this process, the more likely it is that people will check out, which ironically enough makes um, everything that is, is happening in terms of the rhetoric counterproductive to what the left claims that they're just trying to do, which is, of course, strengthen democracy and drive turnout. So I think you're right. We can win this with facts. We can win this with honest debate. And reasonable minds can disagree on some of these. But I don't think, um, I don't think we get any positives from, from characterizing this as a you know, doom and gloom, sky is falling sort of scenario where democracy is in peril. What we really are talking about is making it easy to vote and, and hard to cheat. And that's exactly what a lot of these state laws that get denounced as Jim Crow are, are really trying to accomplish. Very well said, Jason. Listen, we love what you're doing. We love the Honest Election Project. Keep it up and keep us updated. We'd love to have you back sometime soon. I'd love to be back. Thanks for having me. Thanks. All right. So one thing that is really a pet peeve of mine, and I cover it with Hugh Hewitt, our guest today, but I want to deal with it separately, is the hackers. It's, it's really out of control at this point. The hackers. So now we found out yesterday that, you know, the, the so-called Russian hackers, 
because they were derived in, in Russia and we have pretty clear intelligence on that evidently, are actually the same hackers that the Democrats said hacked the 2016 election. Cozy Bear. It was okay for them to say that. I mean, literally, they, ju- they just spent three years talking about how Russia was responsible for electing President Trump. Yeah. Well, they're back. The same guy. And it's like, it, honestly, and this is how I said that with Hugh, it, it, it's like a serial killer leaving a note. Right. <laughs> you know, they're like, no, no, I, I did it. <laughs> I did it. And they did it two weeks after Biden shows up at the G6 saying that he's going to deliver stern messages with a full list of things that they can't hack. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like, this that was one thing that really concerns me, is, like, there was all this, you know, uh, talk about did the RNC get breached, did all these groups, did, you know, infrastructure, what all got breached. Biden rolls up and tells Putin, he gives him a list of, like, please don't hack these things because they would hurt us, right? And then, you know, imagine if uh, two weeks after Trump met with Putin and four weeks after lifting sanctions of a multi-billion dollar pipeline like Biden did for Russia, the Russian government tried to hack the DNC. You think anyone would have asked questions? This is like an absurd situation where Biden isn't retaliating. He's doing nothing. We've had multiple instances of infrastructure in this country get hacked. And it's just crickets from this White House. Crickets. And I think Democrats have basically relied on the fact that there's some sort of up to this point ambiguity about the hacking, right? But now it's their own hackers. Yeah. It's right. the it's the people they said were responsible for the for the election. What are you gonna do now? <laughs> right? What what now? Hey Joe Biden, remember remember the the, the crew that you said that, that Trump didn't stand up to? Whether it's on your watch by the way, it was on his watch to begin with. He was vice president of the United States when Cozy Bear showed up. Yep. And everybody remember that. That was not, that was the Obama Biden White House. Yep. That was in charge of safeguarding American elections that the Russians felt comfortable trying to meddle with. Now we all have our differences about like what a couple hundred thousand dollars of Facebook ads may have done. I think it had basically a negligible effect on the election, but there was no question that there was some meddling there. Right. Because they were trying to do whatever they were trying to do. But those people are now doing much more. They're trying to attack American infrastructure to its core. And Biden is sitting around doing nothing. He was asked directly what's, what he's going to do about it. They won't answer. They did. They, you know, these hackers weren't running amok under Trump. Trump was putting like uh, missile silos and bases in Eastern Europe. Every possible way you could stand up to Russia, he did. And then you're seeing Biden and, and the Dems who tried making that an issue of like, oh, my God, is Trump a KGB agent? For years, they tried to push that. And now you're seeing Biden is just, I mean, this is beyond asleep at the wheel. Do your job. Wake up. Someone wake him up. <laughs> say you got ice cream and then, he, you know, bring him into the room and say, there's not ice cream, actually. Here's a plan for what we have to do about Russia. It goes back to what you were saying on the last episode, Holmes. It's like every day that there's a light on in moscow we have failed i i i mean at this point yeah it's like they are harboring uh these hackers in russia and i mean like if we don't respond in some way look i don't know if it's like the stutznet thing (laughs) stutznet thing or whatever but um you know there has to be a price to be paid by these non-state actors who are being harbored by countries like russia and continue to do what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, for, for those in our audience who didn't grow up in the Reagan era, the beauty of Ronald Reagan is that 
he made every American understand that America was not to be fucked with. Yep. It was, you can, you can, we are the bright shining city on the hill. We welcome people. We are here for good. We promote democracy. We promote people. We try to do everything we can to help lives throughout this world, right? And if you come at us, we are just going to straight annihilate you. Peace through strength. And and this is the exact opposite of that. This is absolute weakness coming from Biden. It just emboldens them to keep going. The companies in, in the U.S. are like getting hacked. They're getting hit with ransomware and they're learning, well, we just have to pay it. Yeah. Because this government isn't going to do anything. Can you imagine coming to that conclusion? You're an American company that's on your own. There used to be it, there used to be a thing in the in the Reagan era, and I would say it, it happened in the Bush era too. If you were like an American tourist who was somehow abducted, you knew your government was coming for you. Yeah. You know, and, and whoever did it was going to be in a hell of a lot of trouble. What confidence do you have now that there are huge American companies that basically are reduced to a decision whether or not they have to pay Russian state government hackers a bounty to get their company back. And, and, and you brought this up in the in the previous episode where, where you're like, uh, you know, how many hacks until we retaliate? And then, you know, Philip Wegman actually asked the White House. He interrupted and said, how many ransomware attacks until the U.S. retaliates? No answer. No answer. No answer. I mean, meanwhile, we've talked about this before, too. You've got Iran that's basically running amok on our with drone attacks and all kinds of things. I mean, this is this is what weakness looks like, guys. It doesn't matter what the media says about our standing in the world. They don't know shit. Nope. The, the reality is what the rest of the world does. And what the rest of the world is doing is saying we're not that nervous about America. And that's just should be flipped on its head because the reality is everybody should be very worried about what America can do to you because we have the capacity to basically take care of the problem. Right? Right. Right. And like, here, here's the thing is like, you know, you don't want to call your play and, 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 and tip your hand. I get it. Uh, but the Biden administration has to do something about this. Yeah, totally. They do. All right. Summer of violence. Back to the, back to the topic at hand. Your Summer fa- violence. This, I mean, this is Smug's favorite it, it, topic. Because it's so ignored. It's like one of the most pressing issues facing Americans. And I think this is, you know, part of a greater theme. Like, okay, it says more than 180 people died in gun violence over the July 4 holiday weekend. Okay? And and what are what are Dems worried about right now? What are the issues they're covering right now? They aren't talking about uh, kitchen counter issues. They're not talking about the rising price of groceries, the skyrocketing price of gasoline. They're not talking about, uh, you know, c- cities are just seeing a surge of violence. There's violence. people actually being killed. 180 people died over the 4th of July weekend. And you see images from like San Francisco where, oh, you know, theft is essentially legal now. Uh, 516 injuries from shootings. And I even object to the way it's characterized here as gun violence Mm -hmm. because it's violence, period. Yep. Right? We saw there was knives. There was all kinds of different things. And what, what the administration will have you believe, and I guarantee they roll this out if they haven't already, is that the solution to this is banned guns. Right. Right. How many of those 180 people you think died with somebody using a hunting rifle that was bought legally and registered? And, and how many of those right? happened in, in cities that have some of the toughest gun laws in the country? Exactly. Well, that we've got stats on that. We've got stats on that. Chicago 
Chicago. This stat is unbelievable. 82 people were shot last weekend, 14 fatally over the 4th of July weekend in Chicago. I mean, that, it's got to be worse than Baghdad and Fallujah and everything else combined. That's insane. That is that is literally insane. Do you think the problem has something to do with the governance of these cities? The fact that they spent the entire year last year encouraging mass looting, encouraging these yeah. protests that became violent, yep. that, that, that ultimately ended in city councils voting to defund the police. Do you think that that maybe has some connection to the fact that these atrocious figures are going through the roof? Well, it was it was mostly peaceful gun violence. <laughs> and also they tried remember they tried pushing that talking point that uh night fights are just like a rite of passage. Dude, do you remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like that's also totally well, normal. The, the girl just tried to stab the other girl. It was like just just rite of passage. It's, it's just, just kids thing. being kids, you know. Kids night being Well, fighting. that was yeah, that was a justification for the police involved shooting in Ohio yep. that they said the police officer should not have been involved in. Because the woman had the knife over her head and was ready to stab the other girl, and the cop took action. Yeah, you know, a mental health counselor is going to show up there and mediate that knife fight. Uh, you know, yeah, keep it clean. It's just clean. Folks. Let's just stop. We got we. Everybody who listens to this already understands this, but we got to stop having irrational conversations. Right. That's this it. has absolutely nothing to do with gun control or anything else. We got a hell of a problem. There is a huge, huge number of people in this country that are feeling empowered to rob, to loot, to kill other people. That, my friends, is a systematic problem with policy and with leadership. And all of those cases, maybe not all, almost all of those cases, we're dealing with generational democratic leadership that has decided that this progressive dream of counseling our way out of it is the way to handle violence so i mean i, I said this on on twitter and it kind of took off uh so you know chesa Budin, the out and i can't i don't know how you pronounce it he's the uh, district attorney of san francisco uh literally the child of terrorists like his parents were jailed for i mean like they're trying to blow up buildings um and i guess that's kind of put a chip on his shoulder of like you should empty out the prisons and of course in san francisco this kind of guy gets elected da he 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 ran on a platform essentially being like well you know you could cut back on crime if you legalize crime <laughs> if you don't right? prosecute I mean, it that's, yeah that's i'm thinking there what a cheat code what a cheat <laughs> you know, code this like, is hey, the guy who's like soft on drug dealers right? totally he's like you know because we don't understand their lived experience exactly he's like know? listen you know the these cartels are after them we got to be nice to the people who are filling, you know, the veins of our, our our citizens with poison. Yeah, just because this guy is out selling heroin on the streets of San Francisco causing people to OD doesn't mean he should be a criminal. So if you if you decriminalize, you know, robbing stores, if you decriminalize all of this, like if you go in San Francisco, it, I mean it's the stories are true. They're, yes, they're shooting heroin well, in on in broad daylight on the streets. You don't want to be there. If you think that we're magnifying this to a point where it doesn't actually exist, 
why don't you send a note over to Target and Walgreens yeah. and the rest of the companies who've decided they're pulling up stakes and moving out of San Francisco because they don't see it Dude, that they way. they have to close doors early yeah, because they, they're worried about shoplifting. They, they essentially, it's gone to that point. Chessa, like, essentially legalized shoplifting. So you'll always see, like, videos of, like, people just run into a store, grab everything they carry, and run out. And so th- there's, there's an effort now underway to recall him. But my take on that is leave him in power. Leave him in power. Because when you have, I like love you, this take. Like I, you described, yeah. generational Democrat, like liberal governance, you know, this is exactly what they voted in. Like liberal policies in liberal cities isn't a problem; it's a proof of concept. Like uh, Nancy Pelosi's there in San Francisco. You think she sees any of this? Cares about any of this? Her her like entire street is gated off, and she's in her mansion. She never has to walk out there. She's not going to any of these stores that are getting robbed. She, no one she knows. Is 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 getting sold heroin and dying in the streets like so many? These she doesn't actually care. She spends care. she spends her time wrapped in a kenta cloth, calling things like voter ID Jim racist. Crow. Yeah. Jim Crow two point right. the and problem then, is the problem is though is that you know those people in San Francisco look around and they see you know open air heroin use and people ODing on the subway. And they go, gosh, I got to get out of here. And then they move to Austin and they move to Miami and then they vote for Democrats. Yeah. And they want the exact again. same thing. And it happens again. So it's a bad new. Well, listen, it's not Chicago, New York City. Yeah. Uh, police reported 26 victims in 21 shootings. Right. Mm. The only crime that I think that may not be responsible for liberal governance smug, you may be responsible for it. It was the man that was punching a horse. I saw that. I saw that picture. I was worried it might Who, be you. I, I, hey, he took the horse out though, didn't he? Did he? I, I don't know. Did I he though? He won. I think he won. I, I don't think he won. I didn't see an after picture. <laughs> and that horse could, I didn't see that the horse hoofed him. Well, the horse was also restrained. I would like to point out the horse has a carriage. Part of smug strategies. He, right. Right. Horse. It's not even going to be fair to the horse. Unbelievable. <laughs> but I think he got multiple horses. I, don't, I think he, I think he hit like three horses. Oh my God. <laughs> This guy was trying to take on a full stable. (laughs) That's more than Smug's claimed. Amazing. But you got to be careful with your words, Smug. You got to be careful with your words. Inspired this gentleman to a life of crime attacking horses. (laughs) Yes, he is conducting violence in your name. Yeah, I wonder if like New York decriminalized horse punching, but I mean, I just think it's a, it's a, it's to me this comes down to it's just neoliberal woke policies rely on an elite ruling class they're safe in their mansions like uh, uh pelosi who's got her like double fridges that are like twenty thousand a pop just yeah. showing off oh you know i've got a dozen the jenny's cartons. ice cream yeah, yeah a dozen cartons of this ice cream what is it with ice cream anyways um but 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 they are dictating social and economic policies like you said you know the kente cloth kneeling thanking george floyd for dying yeah it's, she literally thanked <laughs> george floyd for dying which i mean gives away the whole strategy of like they just want to use these people to push their partisan ideas. They don't care about the robberies, the crime, the people dying. She's in her mansion. And it's, it's the whole like I said earlier, it's all of California. You've got your you've got your uh, DAs who are like legalizing crime. You've got a governor who like what is Gavin Newsom doing this? I saw a really great quote from Mike Solano, good friend of the program, who said uh, on California he said, listen, I'm really not trying to stress you out, but the West Coast is presently one meth addict's cigarette away from a megafire, and Gavin Newsom thinks that this is something we should just accept. Meth addicts and megafire. I mean, certainly not tobacco. Like, that oh. is... 
their priorities. That's their priorities. <laughs> but you know what? I'll tell you, the, the good news, the silver lining in all of these topics that we're talking about, whether it's the election issue or whether it's the crime issue, they are not fooling the American people. Yep. There, there is a, a poll recently out that uh, it's an ABC Washington Post poll, right? So it's the heart of the, of the, of the resistance here that is, that's giving out the poll. And what they say is that, uh, how would you describe the problem of crime? 59% said extremely or very serious. 7% said not serious. I mean, that's as close to consensus in America as it gets, right? Would stricter gun laws help stop violent crime? 53, no. Yeah. 53, no. And part of that is because you've defunded everybody's police, and so the people who are upstanding law-abiding citizens over the last year have probably purchased a firearm. It's it's you know it's pretty funny how quickly they they just like gave up on that talking point because they tried gaslighting Americans into being like actually the Republicans created defund the police and no one was buying it. I think they tried it for like three days and they just like now they don't talk about it's just it. Just such at a all. clown argument. But uh, you know they got Dana Milbank to write an article about it. They got Jen Rubin to write an article about it. Ron Klain got to RT both of them, and they moved on. And they moved on. <laughs> <laughs> Just the saddest shit. These the, people are such losers. The last question we need to we need to talk about is the is the would increasing funding to police departments curb crime? Fifty five yes, forty no. Fifteen point spread. The yeah. the world's changing. Democrats don't want to accept it. They're still RTing Jennifer Rubin. They're still RTing Dana Milbank. They're still living in this alternative universe. Meanwhile, the rest of the world has moved on. And, you know, to wrap, to put a little bow on all of this, I think it really shows right now the conservative base is energized. We are winning. Like, things are going our way. We got, you know, wind in our sails. All the kitchen counter issues, price of groceries, price of gas, crime, issues that affect everyday Americans— the Dems are completely bonkers or not even addressing it, not even addressing it. They like you'll get the White House to try it out and say there's a chance that you could save 16 cents on a meal. Yeah. Well, and it, it cascades down. Punchbowl did an, did a poll within AIDS on Capitol Hill, right, of what their bosses care about on economic issues just 15% of Democratic aides said their boss is worried about inflation. Think about that. Just 15% of Democratic aides believe their boss is concerned about the only thing that most Americans' pocketbook issue is concerned with. Right. I mean, are you kidding me? And Conversely, 94% of Republicans say their boss is concerned about people paying too much for household items. That seems to me like one party is almost universally aligned with where the American people are, and one party is just tragically out of step. Yeah, like we, we you're talking about hundreds of people dying in these cities that have encouraged, essentially encouraged lawlessness, and the Dems' concerns are completely off. They're trying to, you know, side with the teachers' unions and get CRT put into your kids' curriculum. They don't care about people dying. They don't care about how much you're paying for groceries. They don't care about how much you're paying for gas. It's actually not overstated. Yeah. That is true. Well, and they can't care because they have the rest of their handouts, uh, you know, to liberal special interest groups they have to get through, right? You know, we had this just complete farce 
at the White House where you know Joe Biden comes out and says, we have an infrastructure deal. Guys, we're going to focus on, ridge, on bridges and roads, and we're going to rebuild America, right? And then later that day, he's like, oh, also, I'm going to need this $6 trillion <laughs> liberal <laughs> wish list that we're going to try to pass through reconciliation without a single Republican vote. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, so, so none of them can admit that that inflation is a problem because they got to get through all that. They got to have a handouts to every spe, spe, liberal special interest group in the country. So the bad news is we have to endure what's happening. The good news is change is coming and it's coming in a tidal wave, a red tidal wave. Let's go. And let's and go. Eyes on the prize. Like I say, those topics, we got to keep hammering. Kitchen counter issues, price of groceries, crime and skyrocketing price of gas you're paying at the pump we keep hammering them on this and it's w w this tidal wave is coming the red wave is real and it's just so obvious like just talk to your friends and neighbors it's the only thing anybody's concerned about yep. right nobody's concerned about one six commissions or the absurdity of the democratic agenda that they're trying to run on it's just it's nuts anyway listen i want to get to a, a, a very big interview uh hugh hewitt has been just tremendous to us um, is also a legend in conservative circles, a legend broadcaster, and continues, I think, to, to give one of the best interviews in all of politics. He's got a lot to say. Let's get right to it. I want to welcome to the program somebody we are huge fans of. Uh, just an absolute legend, host of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Hugh Hewitt is a regular columnist on the Washington Post. He's a CEO of the Richard Nixon Foundation, a law professor at Chapman University. I mean, geez, where do you find the time, Hugh? Actually, being a law professor is the greatest gig in the world, Josh. I recommend it. You teach two courses a semester. That's by ABA Diktat. You can't do more than that. And I'm so old that they give me half the year off. So I only teach one semester a year. <laughs> and I'm tenured so I can be, you know, as conservative as I want to be. That's the best gig in the world. Radio is beats working, writing a post column. I got great editors. Nobody agrees with me over there, but I got great editors. And uh, so it's, I've somehow managed to hit the sweet spot. Well, and you're, you're a law professor who knows a little something about the law, which sort of sets you apart in modern day academia, doesn't it? Well, I did practice simultaneously for 32 years. I'm retired from uh, private practice now, but I wrestled with the federal government on endangered species and land use and waters in the United States for 30 years. So when I went into the classroom and talked about the takings clause, I actually knew what I was talking about. <laughs> uh, and that's a big difference. But there are, we have a great faculty at Chapman. And I got like Jonathan Alder and uh, Steve Vladek doing the show now in the radio. They're smart guys of, of right and left, and they're, they're still out there. There are a few out there. We still got a few out there. Well, that's good, that's good to know. Well, a lot of people don't know about you, Hugh, is what you just mentioned, that in addition to being this radio star that we've all known here for now seeming like generations, you did have a lot of practice in the real world. You, you not only had private practice from the legal standpoint, but you did some government work too. Yeah, Axelrod, who's a buddy, says I'm zelling because I happen to have been, and he's right, I've been very, very lucky along the way. I went to work for Richard Nixon and David Eisenhower in reverse order of that right out of college. Then I went to law school. Then I went to clerk on the D.C. Circuit. Then I went in the Reagan administration and had two attorneys general, Smith and Meese, two great men, worked for Reagan and Fred Fielding in the White House, and then went out to the agencies for a few years. So it was good to be young. I think this is a good rule, Josh. I'd ask you this question. 
it's good to be young and join a presidential administration, or it's good to be old and join a presidential <laughs> administration, but don't do it in the middle of your career. What do you think about that as a general rule? Sound, very sound advice. That is, yeah. you don't want to get in the middle anywhere because that is a tough gig. It is, because you got to exit at some point and find a job. And so if you're young and they don't like the administration you joined, they just think you're stupid. And if you're old, they don't care. And so it's, it, it's the people in between who wonder, you know, these poor people who came out of Trump land yeah. who are on an igloo somewhere in the Arctic, uh, God love them. Many of them went to the Hill, like you, you spent time on the Hill, and many of them are finding their way in conservative media, but a lot of them are out on an igloo, and it's because they did good work in the agencies. Yeah, I mean, this, this rule only applies to conservatives, by the way. Oh, yes, 100%, absolutely <laughs> correct, 100%. If you are a liberal and you go to a liberal administration, go at any time because you've got every single tech company and green energy company, everybody in the world is looking to put you a paycheck in your pocket. Do you know any unemployed former senior administration official from the Obama years? Even one? Not a one. Not you have to one. be Ben Rhodes not to get a job in this administration. <laughs> now, Am I right? And think about how difficult that is. Oh, you know, you know I, look, I got I to gotta grab this. I am the only man in America who has on his bookshelf John Kerry's memoir. I'm the only one who's read it, okay? And I interviewed him for two hours. And I, the thing I found best in this whole book, I'm going to prove it right now. I hadn't thought I would do this, but you'll appreciate this, Josh. All right. You know the Washington read where you go to the index? Absolutely. So we've got 700 pages of John Kerry, 600. I don't want to uh, exaggerate here. Ben Rhodes gets a mention once on page 425. So the Secretary of State with a 40-year career, Ben Rhodes, the Metternich of MSNBC, gets a one mention. That tells you why his books can't sell if they're giving them away at the front of Barnes & Noble. I love that. And you've reduced it to exactly what everybody cares about, right? One stinking mention in a 700-page. I can't. You, you really read a 700-page biography? I did. I carry? John Kerry is very interesting. I, I will read anybody's memoir. I'm a sucker for memoirs, huh. but his is very interesting. He is the real Zelig. I mean, he has been around since Genghis Khan, right? And he was <laughs> protesting. He protested the Vietnam War in Genghis Khan. It was one of the most famous clips ever, one of the most right. controversial election campaigns ever in 04 in the Swift voting. Yep. Uh, and then Secretary of State. Now he's back. I think, Josh, you would be the one to confirm this. I think he's the only person ever to have had offices, offices at the same time in the White House, the Pentagon, and the State Department. Yeah, I only assumed that that was some kind of an entry negotiation, right? Because it made absolutely no sense as to why he was in the State Department, but yet he got that. And then, you know, every liberal sees climate change as a national security imperative, so he's got to go to the Pentagon. And I assume the White House was like the throw-in because he wants to hang out with the crew, you know? He wants to be in the mess. and and. He's a very interesting guy to talk to. He's a good interview. If he'd come on, a good interview. But um, the complications that that raises for everybody at the Pentagon and at Foggy Bottom are enormous. I mean, you don't want that if you're Blinken. You don't want that if you're Austin. You've got a, a, a member who's got walk-in allegedly privileges in the Oval. He's old friends with the president. I mean, really old friends with the president. He's really probably, along with Ron Klain, the most important figure in Washington right now on the Dem side. Uh, it just would be endlessly, it's fascinating. No one's written about it yet, but yeah, I read his book and I'll read, I read memoirs. Memoirs tell you a lot about the person, even though they don't intend to.
Well, you are you are a true intellectual, and that if there's ever been proof, it's the ability to get through a John Kerry 700 page memoir. My Lord. yeah, but I want one mention of Ben. You know what the best memoir is? You'll you'll. I'm not just shining you on. I'm not blowing smoke. Okay, all right. McConnell's The Long Game. Yeah, I give that to young people. I say read this. This is the way that you can start too late, but you can never start too early. Yeah. Well, that Bitches. one. That one was 30 something years in the making, you know? I mean, I think Obama wrote his first memoir when he's like 27. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you just you just exposed me. I have not read the Obama memoir. There we go, all right, fine. Okay, I'm exposed. And he's not gonna interview on my show. He's never gonna come on. I'm not gonna read his book. I'm not gonna accept a review copy. I'd love to interview him. It would be courteous. I am courteous. I mean, I've had Hillary on the show. I read her book. We get along fine. But he won't do anything that isn't. Yeah. He just won't do it. Well, we found the limit of your endurance, Hugh. I'm glad that we could do that in the first 10 minutes. Oh, I'd go shamelessly. I'd have him on. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'd say, come on. I'll be obsequious. Come on in. I'd absolutely. Just to get one question in. One or two. Uh, you know, why he won't come on, John. I really would find a way to ask him why his grades are secret. Oh, interesting. I, I think it's significant. Who huh. keeps, who cares? Who cares? Right? I got a, a C or a D in crimes because I had a goofy professor at Michigan. I don't care. Yeah. Release the transcript. I don't care. It's Peter Weston's fault. It's not my fault. I did the same I did in my A classes, but the president doesn't want people to know what he did in college and law school. You tell me why. Yeah, I don't get that at all. Right? I mean, what, what's the, like, you've got to preserve some faux intellectualism. I mean, he's a smart guy. We got it. He's a smart guy. He can talk the talk. He's walked the walk. I don't care if he didn't. I, I went to one class in corporations my entire senior year. One class, my colleagues, this will date me, in my row, stood up and did, da 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 When I came in and, and Al was up there in the front, of, what's going on? And there's this guy in the third row who he's never seen before. There was an exam, right? There was an exam. So I had to come find out what's going to be on the exam, get my outline out. This is real law school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that sounds a little bit like my first year at Arizona State in almost every class. So I didn't know you were ASU. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Arizona State University. It was not an academic decision, although it's come, become kind of an academic institution. Oh. It, it wasn't when I was there. Oh, it is. And uh, the O'Connor School of Law, I've lectured yeah. there. Terrific School of Law. Cronkite uh, journalism's pretty good. And I think, you know, I kind of hope Ducey runs for president. I just would like to see, along with Ron DeSantis, another governor. Mm -hmm. Another governor who can talk the talk and walk the walk. And, and uh, Ducey's done a very good job. He is, by the way, the only person for whom I have ever hosted a fundraiser in my home along with the Fetching Mrs. Hewitt, as I refer to her on my radio show. That's the only person is Doug Ducey because he's just a wonderful guy and he's from Ohio. Yeah, well, I happen to agree with you. I'd like him to run for Senate first. Brnovich is in. I was desperate, right? Until Bern, uh, Berno is a good guy, uh, the AG. So I assume they talk. And I was getting pretty desperate and I was ringing the bell. He may yet run for president, but Berno was running for governor and I thought, what? He yeah. can take out Kelly and he will. Yeah. Well, well, let me let me get back to your your radio show here, Hugh, because I think that you uh, what you just outlined about your willingness to talk to a whole bunch of different people, people that you disagree with vehemently, but you you have been sort of a model, I think, for us on on Ruthless is to have a conversation, uh, a civil conversation, 
that doesn't start with a bunch of gotcha stuff that's basically just trying to elicit information. Is this something that you just have grown into over the years or are you just sort of naturally gifted at it? I mean, how, how did this, and because I, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I used to joke that every time McConnell did your show when I was working for McConnell, I was like, listen, heads up, everybody thinks this is an easy interview. He's going to make more news today than he's made in the last month. <laughs> and it happens every time. Every time. Uh, because, you know, uh, that's because I, I follow what the leader says. I read his press releases and I'm deeply invested in the future of the court. And he's responsible for a 6-3 majority that just was a big, it was a rout. It was a complete Hannibal destroys the Romans. Now the Romans might come back and destroy us, but we destroyed the Romans to start with. And it's all because of the leader. So I follow it, but I don't think it's that difficult. And I've listened to you and Smug and you do the same thing, which is let a guest talk. If a guest asks you a question, answer the question, engage in a conversation and prepare. I mean, prepare. It's, it's not, I've seen a lot of people over the years sit down and just wing it. I was at the great advantage of watching Geek Time, William F. Buckley on Firing Line when I was yeah. a kid. Right. Okay? And so that was, if you're growing up in the high school in the early 70s, and I graduated from high school in 74, I'm 65 years old, uh, you watch Buckley every week on Firing Line. Then you'd go have fun and goof around. But Buckley was the best, and he was funnier than you could possibly be. Oh, right. Yeah. I do, I do have rules which you guys break. I have rules which you break. Number one, do not interview comedians. Okay. Number two, do not interview athletes. Uh, every time I've interviewed, even humorists are dangerous. Uh, yeah. Colbert is dangerous. I went on his show and I basically put my arms up and took the blows and got through the 15 rounds and sold some books. But Harry Shear, Tracy Ullman, Jeff Foxworthy, the worst was Tim Conway. Oh, disaster okay. interviews because they don't want to be interviewed that's right well and i've also found that an awful lot of comedians that sort of hew off the left-hand side even if you don't sort of know them as being activist left are just sort of angry right they're like well, they're, they're funny harry is. from a dark place yeah harry is tracy ullman not political foxworthy and conway i let down my guard because they're yeah. conservatives but it's still like shaking hands with a tornado if yeah, they yeah. come in, it's not about your question. It's about what bit does it remind them of? Oh, and then, okay. then they go off on a tangent, which I may end up doing with you, but they are athletes I just can't talk to because I do have an inhibition about embarrassing people. Mm -hmm. I don't want to embarrass someone who doesn't deserve to be embarrassed. If a politician comes on your show and they can't answer a question. That's yeah, they're in that line of work. work. Absolutely. Yeah. And so an athlete comes on my show. I, uh, you just made me think of, I did the Oscars one night for PBS. Yeah. One time, the the red carpet. PBS sent me out there, KCET in LA. I did TV for 10 years while I was doing the radio. And so I went out there with an Oscar and said, ask PBS questions. So I went, it was the most awkward, awful, <laughs> terrible. Jay Leno looked like he was going to punch me. Oh, Steven no. Seagal was going to punch me. You know, I asked him, I don't remember what I asked, but I felt so utterly stupid. They're not there to do that. <laughs> You're like asking about the descent in Plessy v. Ferguson. Right? Yeah, you know, you know, John Harlan said this. And, you know, uh, uh, and, but, you know, I think I asked Seagal, what's the greatest crisis facing the world? And he answered it, but it was a bad answer. Not good. <laughs> not good, no. <laughs> Something to do with takeout, I bet. <laughs> yeah, so do not, do not do that to people. But athletes, 
I don't I don't do good with sports people at all. And I I'm an avid fan. Well, you're a huge Browns fan, which is in itself inner turmoil, right? No, that's that's a calling. <laughs> Josh, that's a calling. That's not I knew, turmoil. I knew I could get you going here. I, you know, uh, <laughs> this is the year. I'm gonna. What is? So this is dated. It's uh, it's seven seven twenty one, and this is the Super Bowl year for the Browns. Just write it down. Book okay. your ticket to L.A. I have. Okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll ink it and we'll we'll notify Bernie Kozar and the crew that uh, this is. Have the you year. done Bernie yet? He does a lot of media. He's fun. He's good. Does he? No, I, I would love to talk to Bernie Kozar. You know that I'm a Viking fan, and oh, I'm sad. Really, Sorry. the beginning of my fanship was all about the Browns screwing the Vikings out of Bernie Kozar with the supplemental. Draft. Oh, with the supplemental draft. Yeah. Yeah. Although yeah. My, my Vikings memory is. Ahmad Rashad, Ahmad Rashad, you're too young, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm a little young for Ahmad Rashad. I was kind yeah. of in the in the Chris Carter, you know, yeah. beginning with the Anthony Carter and the Randy Moss. Yeah, thing. Ahmad Rashad screwed the Browns out of a playoff trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it didn't end up well for them either. So <laughs> that we have in common. Yes. All right. So let me get to the Supreme Court. You mentioned it earlier. You wrote a really interesting piece today in the Washington Post. Um, I think, you know, I happen to agree with almost everything you say on the on the Supreme Court just in general, but we covered this a little bit on Tuesday. It's worth taking time to look back and and understand what I, I think you, you described as a uh, decisive, gentle but decisive curve yeah. to the right. Yeah. The, um, the review of the term I did with my Smart Guys 2.0, I used to have on John Eastman and Irwin, they're on the West Coast, it's too early. So now I have on Jonathan Alter at Case Western. He's a conservative. And Steve Vladek, he's a liberal at University of Texas. They're both genius guys. And we did it, uh, the end of term review, and then I wrote the column because a lot of uh, liberals are consoling themselves that it wasn't that bad. Yes, it was. <laughs> if, if, you, if you were a progressive, you're just crying. The big tears time because free exercise clause, yep. uh, states' rights over elections, uh, political contributions being protected, uh, you can, uh, mostly property rights in uh, uh, the final oh, decision, right. Cedar Point, Cedar Point Nursery. Uh, it was a, it might be 7-2, they might have scored a couple of runs here and there. And Steve Vladek came on yesterday, the liberal, and he said, look, I'm going to concede. This is a conservative court. They're not they're not sprinting through the tape. They're not, they're running a marathon, not a sprint. They're not gonna do everything in one term. Mm -hmm. They're gonna do everything over five to six years that needs to be doing, which is reorient the court. It's not a radical institution. I'm an institutionalist too. I think the chief justice, unlike the people who automatically hate him on our team, I love the chief justice. I've known him for 30 years. He's as deeply conservative as you and I are. Uh, they hate him because of the Obamacare decision, but without which, uh, purely practical decision, we would have lost the House in 2010 when we won it back, and we would never have gotten the Senate had the Chief Justice thrown in with the, the conservatives who wanted to strike down the entire law. And he had a decent argument, and there is a long-standing rule of constitutional law that you do not strike down a federal statute mm -hmm. unless it's clear that you have to, that there's no other way out. So he went down the hall, got off of the uh, the second bedroom, climbed up on the roof, found a little shed up there, and got into the back corner to find the taxation clause and saved Obamacare. That's what you're supposed to do. So 
they hate him. Uh, you know, our friends on the right hate him for that decision. They forget Citizens United. Okay, he, he, he wrote the decisive thing. Well, I think First Amendment-wise, he's as strong as anybody on the court, right? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about those decisions that go all the way back to basically immediately after he was seated as Chief Justice. He's been rock solid on First Amendment political speech. Yep. He's also rock solid on the use of race to award benefits or inflict penalties. Right. I quoted to an online critic yesterday the last significant line in Seattle School District, the Concerned Parents of, of Seattle versus Seattle School District. It's a 2007 case. Roberts is the author, he writes, the way to end racial discrimination is to end discrimination by race. Mm -hmm. And so that say goodbye affirmative action, when that gets up to the court, whether it's the Harvard case or whatever else is pending, it's done, it's over. As it should be, O'Connor gave it a lifeline like she did abortion yeah. uh, 30 years ago. And I think abortion rules are going out the window, the states are gonna be in charge, and I think guns are gonna get a standard of review that we can all understand. I'm not sure if it'll be intermediate or strict scrutiny, but it's not gonna be rational basis. And that's a little con law geek for people, but it's a conservative, it's an originalist court. I'm yeah. very happy. Well, there's intellectual heft behind it, which, you know, I think, look, as somebody like yourself, I have, I've spent an awful lot of time, you know, concerned with the, the court. And I think the primary difference for those who aren't steeped in constitutional law is that you've got, leftists that basically see the job as a, of a jurist as another politician, right? I mean, they're just sort of a, a partisan, just a partisan that's focused on outcomes rather than rationale and administration of, of, of the law. And so that's a big difference. You know, our guys aren't going to always see it the same way every time, but they're going to apply a strict constitutional standard, which is, I think, all we can ask for. I do want to, I want to make an exception to the general rule about liberal judges. Uh, that's true about the late Stephen Reinhardt. And I, when, I, when I clerked on the circuit, Skelly Wright once told me, look, my job is to tell you the result. Your job is to get me there. Yeah. So I was, I was writing opinion for him when my judge was sick. And that was just bluntly, I know what I want. You get me there. That's ends-driven jurisprudence as opposed to constitution-driven jurisprudence. Stephen Breyer is intellectually a giant. Um, and I think Kagan will be as well. Uh, Justice Sotomayor is like Justice O'Connor, workmanlike in her efforts to defend her decisions. Uh, Justice O'Connor, Justice Kennedy, God love them, great patriots. They were not. They, they were lightweights fighting in the heavyweight class uh, against people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a, a genuine heavyweight. The reason she got along with Scalia is they go 15 rounds and still be friends. Uh, when you add to the Chief Justice, uh, Justice Alito and Thomas, who both come out of very distinct jurisprudence and are terrific writers. And I've interviewed both Justice Breyer and Justice Thomas on the radio show at length for two hours. Uh, Roberts won't come on. I think the chief is, you know, he's really walking that line. But uh, Breyer, you might, guys might get Breyer has a new book coming out. You have to agree to the ground rules. No, no decisions pending before the court, no politics. And but you're you're well positioned to talk about it because that's it, a book about whether courts can be reclaimed from politicization. And you're one, you know, he might come on with you. It, he sells a lot of books, but you add um, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett, and it's three out of the top four people I would have appointed. I would have put Ray Kepledge on the court before Brett Kavanaugh, because I think he is a better judge uh, than 
Justice Kavanaugh was at the same time and would have been an easier confirmation. You tell me, John, was it better for the Republicans that Kavanaugh got sliced and diced or would it have been better to have nominated a, a bulletproof nominee? Well, I mean, politically speaking, it worked out for Republicans because it galvanized the base. I think it radicalized a whole bunch of moderate Republicans, right? For the first time, they saw Democrats behaving in a way that was totally unjustified. And Doing the Caesar on the way to the forum stuff. Yeah. I mean, that was brutal. I, I, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's just insane. But, but I think, look, I mean, in terms of confirmations, these are high wire racks. I don't think you ever wish to get by by the skin of your teeth, right? You'd like to take a sure thing when you can get it. I'm very glad. Early in my career, I decided I'm not going to be a judge. I don't want to be a judge. I clerked for uh, the circuit in D.C. I had clerked for Scalia and Ginsburg and Bork because my judge got sick for four months. So they each gave us an opinion or two. I mentioned Skelly Wright, wonderful judges. It's a terrible job. It's a horrible job. I mean, you sit in your office all day, you get to golf, you get yeah, to right. go to the circuit conferences, you can't have an opinion in public or the world jumps on your head. How would you ever be a judge? How would I ever be a judge? Yeah. Our heads yeah. would explode. The two of us wouldn't, wouldn't be able to keep our opinions to ourselves. No, though, right? we'd be banned by the ABA. <laughs> I mean, Scalia let it out on the bench, but right. we'd, be, we'd be booted under the canon of ethics. Oh, totally. I got, so I got one more thing I want to get to before I get to our three questions. You bet. It's sort of a late breaker with all of the Russian hacking uh, that's coming up. And, and we were told before the G7 that we had an amazing amount of courage displayed by the president who was going in to meet one-on-one -on -one with Putin to lay out precisely how he can't interfere with American infrastructure and that he needs to take responsibility for the Russian hacking. We're two weeks removed, and it all hell breaks loose. Um, we've read this morning about Cozy Bear and the rest of them who were up to all the hacking in 2016 are back at it, you know, allegedly hacking the Republican National Committee along with a whole bunch of other things. What's going on here? Former Vice President Cheney told me on my radio show after he left office that when he looked into the eyes of Vladimir Putin, he saw a KGB colonel. Uh, that's, I think, the only way to understand the president of Russia is he's a KGB colonel. He was in the wet division. And if anyone understands it, it's uh, Daniel Silva, the novelist, who's got the new book out, The Cellist, because he's been writing about Putin for a decade. Utterly ruthless. So President Biden walks in and gives him a list of the seven targets he can't attack. One of two things. Either he'll attack everything else or he'll double down on those seven. Yeah. I, I honestly do not understand. The only thing they will understand, and I think this is true about the Chinese Communist Party, they're communists and they're KGB agents and they're ruthless. Your podcast is appropriately covering this. They will attack everything until we hit them back harder than they hit us. Yeah. And you don't have to declare it. You just have to do it. I'm, I'm fascinated. They are so shameless. They keep using the same name. Isn't that remarkable? Incredible. It's like Carla from the Le Carre novels of my youth. Uh, I'm Carla and I'm screwing with you. It's just Putin saying, push their buttons. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like a serial killer leaving a note. I mean, every yeah. single time it's the same. They're, they're happy to tell you exactly. And, they, and there's no need for them God. to tell you who they are, right? That's brilliant. It is a serial killer. Have you used that yet? No. I'm going to steal that. I'm taking that tomorrow. A serial <laughs> killer leaving a note. 
and we know who he is. The only difference is, you know, Clint Eastwood is on the trail, but he won't pull the trigger. We know right. who he is. Right. I, I've said numerous times that if I was president of the United States, there wouldn't be a stoplight in Moscow that worked until they figure out how to get Cozy Bear, Bear out of there. 100%. And, <laughs> and I, not that's a great, I'm stealing that too, Josh. You know, <laughs> copyrights are waived if I'm a guest, right? That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. For you, Hugh, all is available content. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, I got to get to the three big questions that everybody yeah. wants to know about Hugh Hewitt. So, your last meal on earth, what would it be? Uh, spaghetti, spaghetti carbonara comes in two varieties that which my wife makes and everything else. It's the <laughs> former. Uh, it's so good. It is the best meal in the world. Top it off with a uh, two fingers of talisker, and I can go happily to meet my maker. Oh, that is fantastic. And that is the kind of answer immediately you know there's a lot of thought into. Yeah. Absolutely perfect. Okay. All right. So if you didn't get into this line of work, right, let's just, let's broadly take it. You're not involved in, you're not a, a columnist. You're not a radio guy. You know, you're sort of not at the nexus of government and law. What are you doing with your life? You alluded to it. I would be hopefully with the Browns, but I'd be somewhere in sports PR marketing or management. I'm not smart enough to be a Paul D. Podesta. I don't, I don't, I'm pretty good at math, but I'm not that kind of good at math. And I don't really like the sports bureaus and all the analytics. I, I read them. I'm addicted right. to them. But I would have gone that way. And if, if God had been good to me, like he has been in broadcast, and I'd been lucky like I have been, I'd be with the Browns. And I would have endured. I would have endured. There are people uh, who have endured with the Browns and the Indians. Not so much the Cavaliers. They're latecomer. They've endured all these years, and that's where I'd be. You'd be hanging onto the bunk bumper of the moving truck when Modell was trying to pull him out. I guess. Ooh, that's the man who must not be mentioned on my radio show. There's one name that hadn't come up in 30, uh, 30 years of broadcast and 20 years of syndication, and you just used it. Ooh. Listen, I, as a Minnesota guy, Norm Green moved the North Stars out right after he went to the Stanley Cup, and I got to tell you, that to me is the same, same kind. I of didn't know that. See, I'm not a hockey guy. Yeah. We didn't have we had the Crusaders for like two years, so I didn't get into it. And I tried the Ducks, but I was too old. Norm Green moved your team. I mean, when you when you move hockey out of Minnesota, oh my gosh, I mean, where'd they go? They went to Dallas, and they didn't even have the courtesy to change the name. They just dropped the North, called them the Stars, and wore the same I, colors. I, I know so little about hockey. I didn't know that. That just, would be brutal. Just awful. <laughs> that would be brutal. It's sort of like the the Colts fans, yes. and the Browns fans. The only thing that they could have done to make us hate them is steal our franchise. That's which right. They did. Uh, you know, that Baltimore, oh, we got robbed. We'll take yours. That's not the way it works. I hate the Ravens. I, I really hate the Ravens more than I hate the Steelers, and I hate the Steelers a lot. I love I laugh that. at the Bengals. But. This, is, this is the kind of sport where Hugh, you and I could watch football. I guarantee you that. <laughs> well, you know, if you're not rooting for my guy, watch with my boys. We're nuts. No one's allowed to call. No one's allowed to come yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. Same no, thing. no chatter. Yeah. There's no. a game on. It's important. No, it's serious business. I it's serious business. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So third and final question. What motivates Hugh Hewitt more, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? Thrill of victory. You mentioned it earlier, making news. If you can make news, if you can get a headline that's picked up inside or outside of the beltway and repeat it, that's a, that's a home run. It's not a strikeout if you don't, because it's 15 hours a week. Uh, but if you make news or your column travels, if you make news, it's a win. That's what I, that's what I like to do. I like to move the curve.
Yeah, you're always the sunny optimist, you. I, mean, I don't know anybody who comes in with a uh, more optimistic, fresh take than you do, and you've been a legend. You for- guys do it, too. That's why, you're, that's why you're rocketing up, is that people don't understand happy works. Happy does work. Happy does work. We got a little edge every once in a while, as do you, but it's, it's nice to start with an, with an open, right? Yeah, happy works. <laughs> that's exactly right. Listen, Hugh Hewitt, I can't thank you enough for all you do and for coming on, taking some time for us today. Josh, thank you. My best is mine. Absolutely. Be well. So he's awesome. He's a, just a big, big friend of the program and always thoughtful. You know, I don't agree with everything, and he doesn't agree with everything we say, obviously, but, but that's his point. His point is that within the conservative tent, we take different pieces of it and try to articulate it, and he adds some intellectual heft to a lot of these arguments that I think you heard today. Also, it was uh, a total blast being on his show. It was really awesome of him to invite us on there, and that was like probably the best interview I've ever done, probably the best interview I'll ever do. Dude, I mean, what a gracious guy, yeah. you know? I mean, this is a guy who ostensibly we're kind of in his line of work now, Yeah, you know, in some way. That's wild. And he's been nothing but gracious with with us, you know, had you guys on the show, you know, singing our praises. I mean, I'm just incredibly... He likes the program. I'm just very grateful. I'm very grateful. He also gets media in a way that a lot of people don't, right? Because he's involved in a lot of it, and he sees where this is going, and he understands that things like the Variety Program, the Minions, the movement that this is causing is sort of a next generation of, of conservative thought. All right, so that's another banger of an episode, gentlemen. Nice work, everybody. Thanks again, Hugh, for being on the show. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. Stay ruthless. We'll see you on Tuesday.